As I mentioned last Sunday and this Sunday, tonight we're going to look at the Scriptures concerning tongues. And we're going to deviate from our normal study that we have on Sunday evening, which we've been looking at 1 John, and we were into chapter 5. But I do want to refer to one verse in 1 John chapter 5, and it's found in verse 13. For it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Hopefully one of the things that you've learned from 1 John is the fact that God wants us to realize that we're saved, and He wants us to have confidence in that salvation. And John writes and gives us different examples of why we should have that faith, why we should have that confidence that we are saved. Now, we've been talking about on the last two Sunday mornings about people that believe that we are predestined, that God had a plan for those that are going to be saved and some are going to be lost and there's nothing you can do about it. You either accept that choice or you're going to be rejected one way, one way or the other. God's already determined it. And so they start to look for different ways to try to prove that they're saved, that they're part of that elect. And John has showed us that in our study that if we want to know, uh, be sure of our salvation, one of the things that we need to do is follow His commandments. Be obedient to the Gospel. Be obedient to God's Word. That is something that is very important. And that should give you and I confidence in knowing that we are a, a, a child of God and that we are headed in the right direction, that we're going to heaven because we are living that faithful life. As I mentioned this morning in the lesson, when someone is to ask you, how do you know that you're saved? Well, the answer should be, I've obeyed the Gospel. I believe that I've repented, I've confessed my, the name of Christ, and I've been buried with my Lord in baptism. And I continue to live a faithful life in service to Him. That I've given my life to Him. He is my Master. He is my Lord. And therefore, I'm going to do the things that He has commanded me in His Word. And so tonight, I hope that you have your Bibles. Because I said we were going to look at all the verses that deal with speaking in tongues or tongue speaking. And so we want to look at that tonight. So hopefully you have your Bibles. And hopefully I can hear those pages turning as we look at the different verses. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. But before we get into all the verses dealing with the tongue, I think that we need to be reminded of just what the Scripture is. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God's Word is, is there for a reason. I've asked people that I've studied with. I've asked people that have questions. I've asked people that have just tell, told me something about what they think about you know, following the Bible. And a lot of times I'll hear people say, well, it just feels right here. Or it feels good. Well, and my question is this. What did God give us a Bible for if He does not expect us to follow it? When He's told us how to get to heaven through that Word, why do we want to come up or others want to come up with some other plan to get there? There's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Christ. And therefore, we have to be obedient to what He tells us to do. And therefore, we need to understand that all Scripture 
is given by the inspiration of God. That means it's God-breathed. It means it is what God wants you and I to have. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, backing up a little further uh, into that chapter, it says, beginning at verse 13, it says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We've been talking about some of those individuals. We've looked at some of the things that they've taught over the last couple of weeks that deceive people and make them feel that everything's all right. When in fact it's not alright because they're not obeying what the Bible teaches one needs to do. But we see that there's going to be deceivers. Again, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make these the wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy that those scriptures, those things that are that are all inspired from God, can make one wise unto salvation. In other words, we can understand what God wants us to know in order to be saved. And we can look at different passages of Scripture, and as I've mentioned, we have to take the whole picture. You can't just pull a verse out here and a verse out there and say, this is what I need to do in order to be saved. I've heard people do that repeatedly, where they'll put their confidence in just one verse when you know that that verse is very true. But there's also other things that go along that we must do in order to be saved. And so it's important to take the entire book, the entire Bible, and try to look what God wants us to do and then put that into our lives. And so we must look at what it teaches. We must... Uh, it is the standard that, what we, that, that we need to go by. It's not what you feel. You know, emotions, feelings can be deceitful. You can feel all is right, but think about it. Many people on that last day are going to be surprised at the judgment scene. They felt that they were saved all of their life. But what a day that's going to be when they find out that they're lost. Feelings can be very deceptive. The standard is not some experience. You know, something that may have happened to you. Lots of things happen to us in life. And we need to be careful about how we use those things and apply them to what God wants us to learn from those things. But as we mentioned this morning, some people put their whole confidence, their whole standard of whether they believe that they're saved or not in some experience or some, some other thing that's happened in their life. Some feeling. The standard that we need to apply our salvation to, that we need to look at, is the Word of God. That's the, that's the true standard. Is my life living up to the standard that God has given to me? All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And so that Scripture is what my life is going to be compared to. As a child of God, we need to be grounded in that Bible. We need to be grounded in the Scripture. We need to know what the Bible teaches. Don't put your salvation in the hands of someone else. Don't put your salvation in my hands. Don't just listen to what I'm saying, but search the Scripture to see if what you're hearing is the truth. In Romans chapter, or Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, it says, "...these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the Word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so." 
They wanted to make sure of what they were hearing. They wanted to make sure that what they heard was based upon Scripture. That's important. You know, you, you, you've heard the old movie, the, the, one, the one line in the movie. I don't even remember what movie it was, but that's, that, that phrase, show me the money. Well, guess what? We need to be that way with Scripture. When someone tells you, well, all you need to do is accept Jesus in your heart. All you need to do is pray this prayer. All you need to do is whatever they want to say. You say, show me the Scripture that says that. How many of us are willing to do that? Now, my friend, when people ask you what you need to do, don't be afraid when they say, show me the Scripture. If what you're saying is backed up by Scripture, then you have no problem. Don't be afraid to use the Bible. Don't be ashamed of what the Bible teaches. In 1 John chapter 5, and verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. There's many people out there that are teaching things that are false. Teaching things that are going to lead people in a direction they don't want to go. You know, once saved, always saved. I've always said, that sounds like a doctrine that's wonderful. Doesn't that sound like something that you would want to be a part of? That once you're saved, you can't be lost. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we can be lost. So which is more comfortable? Doing what the Bible says or putting your faith in something that's not true? And then finding out on the day of judgment that you are lost. You know, Jesus gave the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. And the foolish man did what he wanted to do as opposed to listening to God, the plan that God had. And the Bible says that all the rains came and the floods came and all those things happened and his house fell. And great was the fall of it. On the day of judgment, when people find out that they're lost because they believed a lie, and I believe that there are people that are very sincere in believing what they've heard, even though it's not based upon what the Bible teaches, they're going to find out on that day that they're lost and what a great fall that will be for them. And so tonight, let's look at what the Bible says about this subject called tongue speaking. And let's learn what the Bible has to say about this particular subject. We know that Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew the 28th chapter, beginning in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There Jesus tells us what we need to do. We need to go out into the world. We need to teach people. When we baptize them, we need to continue to teach them and help them to understand what they need in order to get to heaven. That's our responsibility. That's something that God, a responsibility that God has given to us. And notice what He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. Not what you think, not what you feel, but what the Lord's commanded. That's what's important. <coughs> And He'll be with us. He's promised that. And so we go over to Mark the 16th chapter, verses 15 and 16, and there we see Mark's rendition of the Great Commission. And he says, He said unto them, beginning at verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. 
And we stop there, and that's, you know, that's really the Great Commission. That's the point that he's trying to tell us what we need to do in order to be saved. We need to preach the gospel. People need to believe that gospel, and then they need to be buried with our Lord in baptism. But it doesn't stop there. And sometimes we shy away from those passages of Scripture when we're dealing with other people because it's hard sometimes for us to explain it. But it goes on to say in verse 17, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In My name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. There's that word tongues. And they shall take up serpents and they shall drink any deadly thing. It shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on a sick and they shall recover it. The question that I have, and I think the question that we all should have, is there more to it than just that? Is all that I have to do in order to have these signs, do I have to believe and be baptized? Is that it? Well, I think that we know from looking at other passages of Scripture that there's more to it than that. Because we can see where Philip taught in chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, where they believed and they were baptized, a group of people. And Peter and John had to come and lay hands on them in order for them to receive this miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. In Simon the sorcerer's case, he was one of those that were in that group. He had to be. He was. He believed. Scripture says he believed, and then he was baptized. And then when he saw that through the laying on of hands that this power was given, he wanted to purchase it with his blood. So when you look at what it says there about the tongues in in Mark the 16th chapter, we can also see from other passages of Scripture that there's more to it than everybody that's baptized is going to have these signs. Well, he goes on when he talks there in that chapter. And so we can ask ourselves, is there more to it? And we look at those chapters. Look at Acts chapter 19, another example, where they they had been baptized in the name of Christ. But they hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous measure. And they had to come and lay hands on them for them to receive it. So again, that's what the Scripture shows us. And then we look at verses 19 and 20. And I think this is key really in what happened in the first century. Because in verse 19 it says, So then after the Lord has spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So one reason that these signs would follow was to confirm the word that they taught. Now think about that. They don't have the New Testament on the day of Pentecost. They were making the New Testament. They were a part of the New Testament. And so they did not have the New Testament. The Bereans searched the Old Testament, the Old Law, to see if what was being taught was true. Because I think you can go to the Old Testament and you can see that God had a plan for the church. He had a plan for our salvation. All of those things are found and foretold in the Old Testament. And so this is all new. And we see on the day of Pentecost that they did signs and wonders and people were amazed. That was for a reason. Sometimes it drew a crowd as we see in Acts chapter 3. 
But we also see that it confirmed that what they were doing was, was from God. What they were teaching, what they were saying. It was there to confirm the Word. They had this power. They could speak in tongues. And that's what we're concentrating on tonight. Even though we see other examples where they healed people and it drew a crowd, but it also confirmed that they were from God. And so one of the reasons that those signs were there was for a confirmation of God's Word. But we also see that in that promise, that there's other verses that have to be applied to that promise. Because we see examples of where people believed and were baptized, but they did not have those signs. And they did not have all that miraculous power until the apostles came and laid their hands on them. Now if you would, turn over to Acts. Acts chapter 1. There we find that the apostles are gathered together. And if you read from chapter 1 into chapter 2, you can find that the they that it is referring to is the twelve. And it's the twelve that receives this baptism with the Holy Spirit. And beginning in verse 1, it says, as was read for us, actually verse 3 I think it is, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by the many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith He, ye have heard... Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And I think that I said chapter 2. I meant chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is where those verses are. And we shall, and again, we'll back up verse 5. And John, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Nowhere in the New Testament could I find where that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is mentioned. We see in this particular case that they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned this morning, when we talk about what the, uh, the Holy Spirit would command, He would be just like Jesus. He would just he'd be just like God where He would command water baptism because that is what that one baptism that, that, that Paul referred to in Ephesians chapter 4 is. It's that water baptism. And so we see in this case where He tells them to go to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem, and that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they waited. And they're now in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, "...and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and filled all the house where they were sitting." And they appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word utterance means in the Greek to be able to speak plainly. In other words, when they were given this this ability to speak in a foreign language, they were able to speak very plainly so people could understand what they were saying. And so the gift of tongues was the uh, the ability or gave them the ability to speak very plainly so people could understand what they were saying. And then the word in the Greek for tongue which is the same Greek word that is mentioned every time we're talking about speaking in tongues or tongue speaking, is glossolia. Or glossal, which means 
language. And it's a human language that people or that they spoke in. The apostles were speaking in human languages, and Luke when we read this, Luke goes to into great detail. He does a great job explaining what is taking place. Why does he do this? Why is it important for Luke to show us what this tongue is, what it means, and how it's applied and what it was used for? I believe the answer is quite simple. Because this is the first time that we see tongues used in the New Testament. And so Luke goes to great detail to show us and to explain with us or to us and to help us to see even in the Greek words that he uses that this is a language that people understood. So why does he do that? Because that's the first time that it happens. And so if you go down to verse 5 of Acts chapter 2, it says, "...and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven." Now when this was noise abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. What they heard that day was whatever language they spoke, that's what they heard the apostles speaking. It wasn't some gibberish. It was something that they could understand very plainly. And it goes on, verse 7, "...and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all of these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born?" Now, I've heard people that will say, well, maybe the miracle was in the ears of the hearer, not in in the speaking of the apostles. Well, that cannot be true because they heard them in their own language. And then Luke goes through all the people that were there, all the different tribes of people that were there. Listen to what he says. Verse 8, how were, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, in Phrygia, in uh, Pamphylia, in Egypt and in parts of Libya, about Syria, uh, Cyrene, and uh, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongue the wonderful works of God. They heard in their own tongue. The apostles were speaking in foreign languages, languages that they had not studied. Now Luke lists all of those languages that the apostles were speaking. And so the tongues were a human language. They understood it. If you've ever been around people that speak in tongues so-called, what they do, you can't understand what they're saying. They've got to have somebody else tell you or they'll tell you themselves what they said. I've been in the presence when someone said they spoke in tongues. They had to interpret what they said themselves. Well, that's a violation of Scripture themselves. There should be others there that could tell me what they said, but that didn't happen. We can move over to the example in Cornelius. Because there's another example where they spoke in tongues. We know that according to Acts chapter 10, that Cornelius was a devout man, that he feared God, and that he gave much alms to the poor. Not only did he fear God, but the Bible tells us that he feared God with all of his house. And 
He was obviously a good man. But he was told to send for Peter, and Peter would tell him what he needed to do in order to be saved. And verse uh, chapter 10 of verse 44 says, And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any forbid water that these should be baptized which, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? The tongues on that particular occasion were just like the tongues that were spoken on the day of Pentecost. It's the exact same Greek word that is used to describe the language that was used. On this occasion, the Gentiles had not, no Gentile that we have a record of had ever been baptized. And it had been a few years since the day of Pentecost. And God wanted them to know, wanted the Jews to know, wanted Peter and the apostles to know that the door had been opened to the Gentiles. And so, how do we know that it was a language? How do we know that it was the same way that it happened in the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Well, listen to what Peter says as he states what took place on that occurrence or at that time. In Acts chapter 11, Verses 13 through 15. It says, And he showed us how he had seen an angel. This is talking about Cornelius. How he had seen an angel in his house which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. So now they, he sent for Peter. Peter has come. Peter is going to tell him what he needs to do in order to be saved. But when he starts to talk, he says the Holy Spirit fell on them. And they began to speak in tongues. <clears throat> Have they heard the Gospel? Have they heard anything that they needed to do in order to be saved? Notice that Peter says that he was to go and to tell them words whereby thou and thy house shall be saved. Peter had to tell them what they needed to know. Peter, when he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And as Peter says, fell on them as on us at the beginning. These are the first Gentiles to obey the Gospel that we have record of. And God is showing that they are approved in order to be saved. That they have this, <clears throat> that they have the ability to be saved. Also, that this door has been opened to all people, not just Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so, there we see an exception of what takes place. First, we have the apostles that receive it, and now we have. Cornelius, Cornelius and his household. And then what are they told to do? To be baptized. Who can forbid water that they can be baptized? They were astonished when they saw what had happened. Not because Cornelius was saved at that point. Cornelius wasn't saved until he heard the Gospel and he obeyed the Gospel. Those, those signs were for a different reason than to prove his salvation. In Acts chapter 19, another example. There were about 12 men that had been baptized with the baptism of John. 
We don't want to get into all the details on that because we don't have a lot of time. But they needed to be baptized in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus. And they did this, uh, and they did that in in verse 5. And when I say they needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus, I want us to understand when they talk about the name of Jesus, they're just saying by the authority of Christ. Jesus said in the beginning there in that great commission to go go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, that's what we baptize in. And that was the authority that Jesus gave us. And when they baptized in the name of Jesus, it was by His authority that they were baptizing. And so they baptized just like Jesus had commanded. Why? Because we know that the Holy Spirit guided them in all truths, brought to their remembrance the things that Jesus had said. And so they were baptized by the authority of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 19 and verse 6, it says, And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they began to speak with tongues and prophesied. Again, that same Greek word for tongues as in the other passages. But here we see an example where people were believed and were baptized, but they didn't receive what had been promised there in verses 17 through 20 of Mark, the 16th chapter, until the apostles laid their hands on. Now turn to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, beginning at verse 10. There it says, "...to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues." Again, when you look up that word in the Greek, it's the same Greek word as used over in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 19, all everywhere that this word is used. It's the same Greek word, human languages. And it's the Spirit we need to understand that gives these gifts. There's other things that are mentioned there in those verses, but we're concentrating on the, the gift of tongues. And in verse 11 it says, But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. Every time the Spirit gives this ability to someone, it was by the laying on of the apostles' hands. We won't find, you won't find anywhere in the New Testament where someone besides the apostles had the ability to lay their hands on someone and have them receive the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles died off, that ability died off with them. And so those that had it by the apostles laying on of hands, once they were dead, that miraculous measure was gone. Why? Because we have that which is perfect, which is the Word of God. Only on the occasion of Cornelius... If you go through the entire New Testament, after the apostles spoke in Acts chapter 2, after they spoke in tongues, you won't find anywhere where someone received the Holy Spirit, the miraculous measure, without the apostles having their hands laid on them. Without them having the apostles' hands laid on them. The only exception is Cornelius, who was used by God to show that even the Gentiles were to receive the Gospel and be baptized. Now over in 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter and verse 8, we see another reference to tongues. It says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall pass or vanish away. Miraculous knowledge 
and miraculous prophecy, that's proclaiming God's Word, preaching, teaching God's Word, they're no more. There's no miraculous measure. Well, I want to preach a sermon. I need to study God's Word. I need to practice. It's not going to be a miraculous revelation that comes into my mind that tells me what to say when I get up here on Sunday. I have to study God's Word to put it in my heart, put it in my, in my notes so that I can proclaim what God's Word says. And tongue speaking, as it tells us there in that verse, would cease. Because in verse 9 it goes on to say, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. What is that perfect, perfect thing that's going to come? Well, it's the Word of God. Some people want to say, well, it's Christ when He returns. Christ has already been here. He was that perfect sacrifice, the perfect example, the perfect everything. He's already been here. So that Word still needed to be compiled, presented. And so when that all came together, there was no need to confirm that Word again because once God had confirmed it, it was enough. And so He tells us there that some of these things are going away. And so in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, in verse 12, it says, "...even so ye..." For as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, <clears throat> my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding also. I will speak with the Spirit or sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. If you notice in your King James Version, and I'm assuming in other versions, that if you look at that phrase in those verses where it talks about unknown tongue, that word unknown is in italics. That means that those that, that were uh, uh, doing the uh, interpretation here, a translation of the Bible, added those words. And I think that they're trying to help you to see that it's an unknown tongue to the individual that's speaking. That it's a language that they haven't studied. But everywhere you see that tongue in that, in that context, it's always unknown and it's always in italics. And so we need to understand that this tongue is the same Greek word that's used over in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 19, Acts everywhere else. It's the same Greek word. And it's the same Greek word where we read about it in all the 1 Corinthians. And so, what good is it, I, I, we need to ask, what good is it to speak in a language that no one understands except you and God? You know, I could stand up here, no, I can't really stand up here and speak in some foreign language because I don't really know any foreign language. I know Southern a little bit. Uh, I know uh, I got a phone call from a cousin one time and it was on the answering machine and he's going on and on and on and Chris is like... Who was that? What did they say? And I had to translate for her because I understood it. Uh, but And I think that that's how they could tell that they were Galileans is that they could see, hear their accent and they knew that they were Galileans and they knew that in some cases we see in the Scripture that they were ignorant and unlearned men. They didn't learn these other languages. But what good is it if you can speak in a tongue... French, German, whatever it may be, Russian, Chinese, and there's no one there that can understand what you're saying. What, how are you edifying the brethren? 
How are you edifying the church? And that's what Paul's trying to bring out here. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, chapter verses 3-9, through 9, and I don't have time to read all this, but the point that he's trying to make is <clears throat> what is being done in the assembly is done to edify and comfort the church. It's to build the congregation up. It's to build the brethren up. To help us to become stronger. To help us to be more capable of taking the Gospel out into the world. And to be, more, or be better at living that Christian life. And if I speak in a language that no one understands, then there's no one there to interpret what I'm saying. What good is it to edifying of the church? You're all going to look at me like I'm some kind of nut standing up here. In verse 5, Paul says, It is better one prophesied so that you can teach and preach the Word of God for the church and so that they can be edified than to speak in a language that no one can understand. That's what he's telling us. That's what he was telling those at Corinth who needed these miraculous things in order to help spread the gospel and to teach people the truth from God that God had for them to know and to understand and to tell and share it with other people. And a gift of preaching and teaching is what builds up the church. And then if you drop down in chapter 14 and verse 20, beginning, it says, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord." There, we're going to stop right there. There's a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 10 and 11 that talks about this is God's plan. He wanted people to be able to understand the Gospel message. And imagine the barrier that would be there if they could not communicate with people throughout the world because the language is a barrier. And so God is overcoming that by allowing them to speak in a foreign language, a human language, so that people could hear that good news. Verse 22, I want you to notice this. Wherefore, tongues are not for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now you have, as we've looked in our study, you have a history of people that are wanting a sign that they're saved, that they're part of the elect, that they're the chosen. And what they say is speaking in tongues is that proof. And what does Paul say? That proof, that speaking in tongues is not for the the believer. It's not to prove that you're saved. It's there for the unbeliever. So that they can hear the Gospel. So that they can hear the news. And of course, if they know that you have not studied that language, that you haven't learned that language, it's going to make an impression on them. Verse 23, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that they are mad? But if we prophesy, there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. When you preach and teach God's Word, that's going to have an impact on the unbeliever. Speaking in tongues isn't a sign for the unbeliever. 
or for the believer. The speaking in tongues helps that unbeliever to hear the truth. And when we prophesy, we're speaking God's Word, and that message helps not only an unbeliever to understand the truth, but it helps us to know, helps Christians to know the truth of God's Word. So Paul tells us that tongues are a sign to the unbeliever. And that prophesying, speaking God's Word, is a sign to the church, the believers, because it builds up the church. And that's what he's talking about in Isaiah chapter 28. And that's what Jesus said would take place in Mark 16 and verse 17. Now verse 26 it says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you have a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation, let all things be done unto edifying. <clears throat> Can you imagine a chaotic scene when you have multiple people speaking in tongues? And no one can understand or be edified because of the confusion that's taken place. And that's what was happening at the church of Corinth. They had this miraculous ability, but they were abusing it. We don't have that miraculous ability today. No one can speak in the tongues like we see in the New Testament. What they're doing is gibberish. What they're doing is not real. Though they may say it is. But the Scripture, I think, proves that it's not. I could have mentioned this morning, got into it this morning, which I didn't because I thought I had enough time. But if you look at some of the science that has researched some of these things, you will find that they have looked at... One person had looked at it for ten years and they had been to different places where the different denominations spoke in these so-called tongues. And they said it was gibberish. That there was no language, no known language that anyone was speaking. And that they had been to other continents where there were other uh, pagans that had worshipped their gods and they did and said exactly the same thing. It was gibberish. And then the question would be, how can that be the case? If they're really speaking something from God, how can a pagan who's worshipping a false god do the exact same thing? And there was more research that was done, but we're not going to get into all of that because I think we've seen enough so that we can prove the point that those things have ceased. But then as we see, what Paul is saying, that all of these things should be done to the edifying of the church. And everything needs to be done in an orderly manner. And so in verse 27-40, through 40, he goes on to discuss how we are to conduct ourselves in the, in the church. And in verse 39 and verse 40, it says, Wherefore, brethren, covet to covet, uh, prophecy, and forget, forbid not to speak uh, with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now you read that passage of Scripture, and you know what I would, the first thing I would think I could hear uh, from someone that believes you can speak in tongues, it would be, well, that Scripture right there says, don't forbid speak uh, those that speak with tongues. Don't forbid that. You can't do that. Well, may I remind you that over in chapter 13, what did Paul say? That these things would cease. So while they had the ability... They needed to do it in an orderly fashion. But at some point, it was going to cease and there would be tongue speaking no more. And so you also have to look at other passages of Scripture along with this when it says, forbid them not to speak. Well, 
At that particular time, they could speak in tongues. But today, we cannot speak in tongues. And so, Paul had reminded them previous to this chapter that it would cease. So what have we learned? Well, we've learned that tongue speaking is a human language. And we've also learned that the ability to speak in tongues was given without study of learning that language. They had this ability to speak in whatever language it was without studying that language. Number three, the ability to speak in tongues was given to the apostles at Pentecost. We've seen that in Acts chapter 2. Tongues were given to Cornelius as a sign for Gentiles, acceptance into the gospel. We see that in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. We see that this gift was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, only by the apostles' hands. In Acts chapter 8, we see that with Philip. Uh, He was filled with the Holy Ghost. We know that from chapter 6. And he went out and he preached the gospel. And the Bible says he did miracles, he did signs. But he couldn't give them the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter and John had to come and do that. And then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 18, it says that when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. He realized that that's where that power, they had the ability to pass that power on. But those that they passed it on to did not have the power. We see no record where they passed it on to anyone else. Number six, we've seen that it was a sign for unbelievers. Number seven, it's used for edification with interpreters. And number eight, we have learned that it was cease when that which was perfect was come, when the apostles died. Well, you'd say, well, people would say, well, can't God give it? We find no example where <clears throat> biblical tongues were given like that in the New Testament, with the exception of Cornelius. No one else received the gift of that Holy Spirit being able to do the miraculous things without the apostles laying their hands on them. So why do I believe that tongues exist or do not exist today? Well, because I don't hear a human language when people so-called are speaking in tongues. They're not speaking some known human language. It's only gibberish. That word utterance that we've seen there in Acts chapter 2 is plain talk. It's plain language. The apostles are dead, so no one can pass it on. Number four, Paul said in Acts chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8 that tongues would cease. And the question would be, why is that so hard for people to believe? You know, we can believe that the miraculous measure of knowledge and prophecy has ceased, but tongues, oh, they got to keep going. Why is that so hard for people to understand? You see how people can be deceived? Number five, it's never used as a sign to the unbeliever today as it was intended in New Testament times. Today, it's used to prove that you're saved, that you're one of the elect, one of the, the chosen. Number six, it's the tongues of angels. It's what they speak in heaven. 
Well, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter. Because that's what people would say sometimes. Well, it's not the tongues of men, it's the tongues of angels. And you didn't talk about that passage of Scripture. Well, 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter verse 1 says, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass and a tingling cymbal. There's only one problem with that. When you want to say, well, we're speaking the tongues of angels. You have to have Bible to prove what kind of language the angels used. And everywhere you look in the Bible, when angels came to this earth or came around people and spoke, what did they speak? In a language that people could understand. It wasn't some gibberish. It was something that they could understand. You must be able to support what you say with Scriptures. Not what some pastor says. Not what your mom or dad may have said. But what God's Word says. And don't be afraid to believe the truth of the Scripture. And don't be afraid to say, show me the Scripture. Because what we've looked at tonight is all the passages in the New Testament that deal with speaking in tongues. That's all. And we see that it's not some, something that you see like it takes place today. You see, God's Word is complete. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 3, "...according to His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that called us to glory and virtue." <clears throat> God has given us what we need. He's given us even passages of Scripture so that we can know that we have eternal life. We don't need a sign. We don't need a miracle. We just need to trust what God's Word says. And so I close with a verse that I started with in this lesson. That all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Don't ever be ashamed of what the Bible teaches. Tonight, if you need to respond to the invitation, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row while we stand and sing.